Blog Talk Radio. Ghost in the Valley. I am your host, Kevin. And with me, the delightful, dangerous Karen. Hello. This podcast is for all the ghouls and goblins out there. In the valley. (laughs) 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 And on the sound of Johann Sebastian Bach, Tokata and Wigge and D minor. I hope I said this right. <laughs> Doesn't matter. This is our ghost episode. Our first ever. Yay! Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Karen. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Um, you know, we were supposed to have some guests tonight uh, to help us do uh, uh, our ghost stories. We're not going to do a whole lot of uh, politics or... Atheism and stuff like that. I do have a one little thing I want to talk about, but uh, aside that, we were just supposed to do ghost stories and the spookiness of it all because I love Halloween. And so do I. And it's just coming up real. It's right around the corner. I even bought myself a little coffee crisp, chocolate bar. I hope our uh, audience can forgive me. I have a bit of a uh, sore throat. I'm a bit under the weather, so I'm hoping I'm not going to be coughing too much. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to go. You sound like a zombie when you do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so what should we start with first? Why don't we just get your little bit of political stuff out of the way, and then we'll jump right into ghost stories. Okay, well, before we get into the Halloween, it's not political, actually. It's um, I came back uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I happened to uh, spot a couple of, uh, well, actually several people from a church that were protesting in mission against abortion. So, I thought that was a scary thing. Yes, don't even get me started. <laughs> so, what I did is I uh, took my recorder and I went out there to ask him a few questions. Um, now, unfortunately, the quality of the audio was not very good because it was like right on the highway and lots of cars driving by. So, it, a lot of the conversation was being drowned out by the uh, the honking and uh, some people were being quite rude to these people, uh, unfortunately. I might not agree with their views, but nonetheless, there's no need to be that rude to them. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have anything to clear uh, or clear enough as an audio to bring down there. But what I thought was very interesting and what was really scary was the um, lack of knowledge of their own holy book. I approached these people and I was asking the same questions, basically. Uh, they were against abortion. I said, so what do you think of Numbers 511? Now, I'm not going to read the whole Numbers 511, but if you if you go to the book of Numbers, this is the part where they basically tell uh, Moses that um, it's an abortion spell, essentially. That uh, if a woman is suspected of uh, being uh, unfaithful, never the man, it's always the woman. It's because men could be unfaithful and they didn't have to suffer the consequences of it, right? There is no, there's no visual proof of 
being unfaithful for a man because you can't get pregnant. It's really as simple as that. Mm. With women, it's easy to point fingers because it's very obvious if she's gotten pregnant from someone else. Yeah. Well, anyway, so so I, when I told them, you know, what do you think of Numbers 511? Well, like I said, the Numbers 511 is this abortion spell. And you're supposed to bring the woman to the priest, and he's supposed to do some kind of a grain offering and mix the ashes with the water. It's supposed to become like bitter water and make her drink that and throw some kind of spell. And if she's been unfaithful, she's supposed to miscarry, right? And she's supposed to become a, a curse and something like that. And I'm, I was surprised by the amount of Christians, and the, in this case, evangelicals, it took me forever to get it out of them. They, they didn't even want to say which church. Uh, none of them, and I mean none of them, knew about this at all. It doesn't surprise me at all, because the, their ignorance is what makes them able to adhere to such horrific and abusive beliefs. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, like Arne Rall famously said, ignorance is not just what you don't know, it's also what you won't know. So I thought that was a nice little thing I just wanted to put out there. Uh, hopefully, maybe next time we can get uh, better audio of these people. But they were very pleasant to me, nonetheless. Mm. Okay, so on to our um, Halloween special from Ghost Story. Blah, 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 blah. I wish I had Vincent Price here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a couple of ghost stories we want to tell uh, people, but I think first uh, you made a quick uh, synopsis as to the origins of Halloween. Oh, well, <clears throat> with many thanks to Wikipedia, anyone can look this up, but just uh, just to summarize, you know, um, why why do we do this? Why do we put on our costumes and go door to door? Well, it is, um, it's the origins of Halloween go back to the Celtic festival of Samhain, or Samhain, which was um, at the end of the summer, that's what it means, summer's end, and uh, it was the time when... Um, spirits and and dead people could come back more easily. The 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 barriers between worlds were thinner, as it were. So you could more easily have spirits in our world, and um, and that was not something to be feared. Actually, that was something to be welcomed, and so people would um, light bonfires because that would help their their ancestors find their way back. They'd light candles as a way of welcoming. They'd they'd make feasts. Uh, sometimes the, the, the deceased person's, you know, favorite foods, and they'd prepare that, and, and they'd have a big party, and, and it was a cool thing that, you know, dead great-grandma is going to come for a visit. It wasn't something to be afraid of. It's it's still somewhat uh, remembered today, although it's not the same holiday, but the uh, the um, in Mexico, they have a festival of the dead. It's called the Day of the Dead. It actually lasts two or three days, and they have a big... They go to the graveyard. They light candles on their ancestors' graves. They have huge feasts at the graveyards. There's dancing. There's sugar cane. It's a big party, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, it'd be nice to actually see something like that uh, more in North America where we're not so afraid of death and uh, what uh, what happens after, but actually, you know, trying to rejoice at the idea that, you know, our yeah. ancestors are still with us somehow. That's right. Although it doesn't mean we have to believe in the afterlife, but, you know. And it's all just good fun, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so so people would um, have divination rituals. They would play games. They would uh, use the, the the ashes from bonfires were said to have protective and cleansing powers. And uh, and they were used for divination. So all the the, the fire had a spiritual aspect. aspect. And then... Um, in Ireland, Scotland, and in Wales, this is where most of these traditions come from. Although there are other traditions in other countries, what we celebrate here is is 
traced back to Ireland and Scotland. So then they, they also had mumming. So people would put on costumes and go door to door and recite verses or sing songs in exchange for food. And uh, and so that was just part of the fun. Um, and sometimes it's considered the costumes that they wore were uh, a means of imitating the, the, the fairies, spirits, or sometimes to disguise yourself. If you were concerned that you might have someone come back who wasn't too happy with you, then you would put on a disguise so that they couldn't find you, so they couldn't haunt you or or revisit you in some way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got some relatives I could use that kind of advice with. So really, in a nutshell, that's it. So it was it was a it was time to uh, celebrate the, the end of the harvest, the end of the growing season, and relax for a bit and just um, celebrate life and and welcome the dead people back to life for a short while. There's actually a cool thing that's called um, oh I can't remember what it's called, but it's a it's a it's a dance. It's a, oh the dance macabre. That's what it's called. It started in France, Ooh, but dance it's macabre. I think it's sort of came to Scotland and England as well, where uh, the spirits are said to come from the graveyards and dance with the living, which is a, a pretty cool idea. Yeah, you just got to be careful when you dip them, because, you know, you might break the spine, and all of a sudden you got remnants all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the, the great thing about Halloween is, um, throughout history, um, the influence of Christianity has been obviously huge. And um, one thing that... Um, Christianity was, or just about any religion is very good at doing, is appropriating uh, a festival or a ritual and calling it their own, just putting a new label on it, modifying a bit, and you know, calling it their own. It's a bit like uh, buying an old strip club and then revamping it into a, a temple. You know, I mean, it's a lot easier than tearing <laughs> out the whole thing and building a new one. You know, so it's a lot easier to just put a new sign and say under new management. But Halloween, I think, is one of those that kind of escaped. Um, well, it was actually All Saints and All Souls Day, which is the religious observation, was originally celebrated in May, and then they put it on to Halloween. Yeah. However, but never caught it, on. It didn't catch on in the way they intended. It was. It still maintained its original character, the pagan character. Yeah, it's not like Christmas, you know. Christmas, obviously, that is put on there for. Oh, and God knows we're going to hear about that real, real soon too. Anyway, I'm not going to talk this about this. This is Halloween. This, this is Halloween. Jeez, this is where we need the drops. Come on, where are the drops? I'm getting them. <laughs> there we go. What's that? I'm drowning. That's a classic song. <laughs> no Halloween is ever complete without this song. I was working in the lab late one Anyway. But we are going to tell you ghost stories today. That's why the, the show is called Ghost of the Valley today. Exceptionally. You want to go ahead or you want me to start? Can we have some some creepy sound effects before we start our ghost days? Uh, of course. Please? Of course. We'll have some ambiance music. The right, appropriate ambiance music. I love that song, by the way. That's by Bobby Boris Pickett. All right. You want to start? <clears throat> sure, why not? Okay. Just once I get that creepy music drop. Yes. There we go. Yeah. So, this isn't a ghost story necessarily, but it's a creepy story. It's called The Withered Arm. This is written by Thomas Hardy, and uh, I'm just condensing it for you. So, there's this woman, Rhonda. She lives on the Heath in England, and it's around 1800, so we're talking 200 years ago. 
And at this time, there were still public hangings, and they were a big, fun time. And you'd go and, and spend your day with your kids watching someone die at the gallows. Aranda has a son, and um, <clears throat> he comes home one day to their little tiny cottage on the heath, and and uh, she says, well, you're going to go into town tomorrow. And the the farmer, in this, there's a, it's just a little village, and so the, the farmer's a rich guy, and uh, and <clears throat> she says, you're going to go, and he's bringing home his new wife, and I want you to look at her, and I want you to just tell me, come home and tell me exactly how she looks. And tell me every single detail about her. And is she pretty? And is she tall? And and I want to know everything. So he says, okay, Mom. And he goes into town the next day, and he sees the farmer come home with his brand-new wife. He's married in a different town and brought her home. And he goes back to his cottage and says, well, she's very pretty, and she's blonde, and she's lovely. And uh, And over time, Rhonda, in the next couple of weeks, gathers all the information she can about this beautiful young bride of the farmer's. And... And then she she just stews about it. She's not too happy about this new young lady who's come to town. So she's sitting li- by the fire late one night. She sent her son to bed, and she's sitting there playing with the coals and the ashes, sitting by her hearth. And so finally she goes to bed, and it's late at night. And and she's lying there. She's just drifted off to sleep, and she's she's... In her dreams, she's seeing this beautiful young farmer's wife exactly as she appears, although she's never met her, but she's heard so much about her that she can picture her exactly. And then in her dream, suddenly the farmer's wife is sitting on top of her chest, and she's leering at her, and she has a horrible grin, and her face turns into this nasty, wrinkly, old face like a horrible, disformed monkey. And Rhonda screams, and she's... She's terrified, and she feels like her chest is compressing, and she can't get this woman off her. And and she she thrashes around, and then finally she grabs her by the arm and flings her off the bed, and she lands on the floor with a crash. And Rhonda wakes up and thinks, it wasn't actually a dream. That woman was actually here sitting on me. And she's terrified, and she spends the rest of the night trying in vain to sleep. The next morning, she goes downstairs, and her son comes down and says, Mom, what what happened in the middle of the night? You fell out of bed. No, no, I no, it was just a dream. But but she realizes that it wasn't just a dream. So she goes about her day, and uh, she's just you know going along, and and then her son comes home that evening and says, Mom, the farmer's wife is going to come visit us. And he's very excited because he really likes her. She is mortified. She says, I told you never to speak to the farmer, and I told you never, ever to invite anyone from his house here. But just at that moment, the farmer's young and beautiful wife arrives, and there's nothing she can do but invite her in. So the farmer's wife comes in, and and she's very kind and gives them gifts. And uh, as she's leaving, she's she's actually so nice that Rhonda has to kind of like her in spite of herself. But as she's leaving, she, uh, she sees that there's bruises on the farmer's wife's arm exactly in the spot that in her dream she grabbed her arm and threw her off the bed. And she asks, what happened? And and the woman says, well, it, actually, I don't know. It it hurts quite a lot, but I don't know what I did. I must have just hit it in, in during the day, and I don't know. But it is in the shape of a handprint, and it's right exactly in the spot. So time goes on, and uh, Rhonda sees the farmer's wife, and she comes to like her and, and realizes she's actually a very sweet and kind person. However, the arm gets worse and worse. The bruises get darker, 
and instead of fading, as they should, her arm gets more and more withered and, and desiccated, and eventually the farmer's wife has to carry it in a sling because her whole arm is, is just dying. She tries every cure, she tries every potion, she tries every ointment, but nothing works. And her husband, who's really quite an ass, is starting to you know not like her anymore because of this blighted arm and so he he's he's withdrawing from her and it's just not good she's very unhappy so finally she comes to Rhonda and says I hear that that you are friends with this old man who lives on the heath and he might be able to help me and Rhonda does not want to take her but realizes that she has no choice so she goes to take to see this man whose name is Conjur Con Conjurer Treadle. So they go out to the heath and they find this man in his little hut. And uh, and he says, well, this is black magic and I will show you. I would rather not do this, but I will show you who has done this to you. So he sends Rhonda outside and he, he casts his spell and he has like a glass of water and some eggs and some weird concoctions. And eventually he is able to conjure up an image of the person who has done this to the farmer's wife. So she comes out, and she's very upset, and she says to Rhonda, Why did you bring me here? You must have known what he would show me. And Rhonda said, Well, you wanted to come. <laughs> There's nothing I can do. So they go home, and the farmer's wife gets worse and worse, and Rhonda eventually, there's many whisperings and and calling her a witch, and so she leaves. She takes her son, and she goes away. <clears throat> now, the farmer's wife gets more and more desperate and uh, as her arm dies and, and she carries it in a sling and her husband really doesn't want to spend any time with her anymore. So she goes back eventually. She goes back to conjure her treadle and says, I need a cure. I don't know what to do. That I've tried everything. And conjure her treadle says, well, there is one thing if you can do it, but it's very hard to do. It says you have to go to the gallows and touch the neck of a dead man while he's still warm after he's been hanged. And she is horrified by this, of course, because she's this pale little flower and she doesn't want to go see a dead man. But she comes to realize that this is the only thing that's going to save her arm and save her marriage and have her husband love her again. So she waits until the next time there's a public hanging and she goes to the town. Meanwhile, her husband he tells her that he's on a business trip and, and he's gone away and, and he's just not around. Well, that makes it easier for her because she doesn't have to explain where she's going. So she goes down to the town, and she talks to the hangman, and he says, well, yes, I'll do this for you. I'll sneak you in the back door. <clears throat> and uh, and you just have to wait here, and, and I'll tell you when to come, and then I'll touch your arm onto the dead man's neck, and you'll be cured. He says, I've seen this happen before. It really works. <laughs> so she agrees. And the the person who's being hanged, the hangman also tells her he's, he's probably innocent. He's just a young man who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's accused of arson, but really he didn't do it. Everyone knows he didn't do it, but he has to be made an example of. So he's there, and he's poor, and they're going to hang him. And she says, I don't care that he's innocent. I just want my arm to be better. So she goes down the next day, and she waits in her spot until finally... The uh, the hangman comes and says, okay, now, but you're not supposed to do this, so you have to be quick. And he takes her to the coffin. The corpse has just been thrown in. He's still warm. And he takes her withered arm and touches the dead man's neck. 
she is so upset that she can't actually look at him. She's just feeling faint and horrible, but she feels her her arm go on his neck, and she feels great shock as the magic flows through her, and then she hears a voice behind her saying, What are you doing here? And she turns around, and it's her husband. It's the farmer. And by his side is Rhonda, and she's crying, and she says, They've hanged my son. And it turns out that not only is the the innocent boy who was hanged as Rhonda's son, his father is the is the farmer. That's her husband. So she's so so mortified that she just she falls into a faint and dies the next day out of shock. But her arm has been healed. Wow, what a story! <laughs> you got everything in that story. <laughs> You got like a, uh, you got like a, the, the affair and everything. I know. It's and this, story. where's the story out of? Uh, Thomas Hardy is a writer from England in the 1800s. Oh, cool. All right. Well, uh, I was re- trying to do some research, trying to find ghost stories from the Fraser Valley. Um, it's actually quite difficult to find. I couldn't find anything really. Uh, you have like. Very short anecdotes, you know. Yeah, you know, I was I got in this house in Chilliwack and and uh, we saw a vase move and a vase move or something like that, and that's about it. Not not good enough to make a good story out of it. When I first moved to this house, which is almost a hundred years old now, I uh, I used to think I heard things. The floor would creak, or the door would kind of go ajar. But that was just because it was an old house that I just moved in. So well, we do have black cats too. That's right. I'm surprised they're not here right now bothering us while we're doing this podcast. I'm sure someone's died in this house at some point. <laughs> well, I'm going to go and tell something from my childhood, actually. Uh, a story. The story of uh, Marie-Joseph Corriveau, which in Quebec is known as La Corriveau. So, put some music. Marie-Joseph Corriveau, at Saint-Vallier, Quebec was born April 18, 1763. She is known as La Corriveau, and she is one of the most popular figures in Quebecois folklore. What does La Corriveau mean? Corriveau is her last name. It's basically saying the Corriveau. Okay. It's like calling you the France. That's right. <laughs> she lived in New France and was sentenced to death by a British court-martial for the murder of her second husband. She was hanged and her body hanged in chains. Her story has become legendary in Quebec, and she is also the uh, uh, the focus of numerous plays. She was probably born in January or February 1733, and she was baptized on May 14, 1733, in a rural parish of Saint-Vallier in France. She is known as Marie-Joseph Corriveau. She was the only surviving offspring of Joseph Corriveau, a farmer, and Françoise Bolduc. Her ten brothers and sisters all died in childhood. From the get-go, there were almost rumors right away that it was unusual for this one child to have survived while all her brothers and sisters have died. It kind of made her childhood very difficult. People would shy away from her, saying that she was somehow in the eye of the devil. Maybe. 
Cody Wu married at the age of 16, on November 17, 1749, to Charles Bouchard, age 23, also a farmer. Three children were born from this marriage, two daughters, followed by a son. Rumors started after the death of her second husband that she murdered her husbands, although there was no concrete record of their death. After Charles Bouchard was buried on April 27, 1760, she remarried 15 months later, in 1761, to another farmer from Saint-Vallier, Louis-Étienne Dudier. On the morning of January 27, 1763, he was found dead in his barn, with multiple head wounds. Despite an official recording of the cause of death being from kicks of a horse, and a speedy burial, rumors and gossip of murder spread quickly throughout the neighborhood. Is husband number three? Husband number two. Oh. Marie-Joseph was already seen as somebody that was unusually and ungodly because of her childhood. Now, two dead husbands. New France had been conquered by the British Army in 1760 and it was under the new administration of the British Army at the time. On hearing rumors of the local British military authorities charge her with, uh, sorry, on hearing the rumors, the local British military authorities that were charged with keeping order set up an inquiry into Doji's death. The inquiry opened up in Quebec City in 1763 at the Ursuline, the convents of the nuns. They charged Joseph Corriveau and his daughter, Marie-Joseph, father and daughter, before a military tribunal made up of 12 English officers. The case ended on April 9th, with Joseph Corriveau being sentenced to death for culpable homicide of his son-in-law. Marie-Joseph was found to be an accomplice to murder, and she was sentenced to 60 lashes and branded with the letter M on her hand. On her hand. Condemned to hang, Joseph Corriveau told his confessor, the local priest, that he was no more of an accomplice to his daughter, that she had killed Dozier. She had killed him for a satanic ritual. At the second trial, on April 15th, Marie-Joseph testified to having killed her husband with two blows of a hatchet during his sleep because of his ill treatment of her. The tribunal found her guilty and sentenced her to hang her body to be hanged in chains. In other words, to be put up in display in a gibet. She was supposed to be executed in Quebec, à la plaine d'Abraham, but her body was taken instead and she was to be hanged at the chains at the Point Levy across the river, at the crossroad of Lausanne and Bienville. Today would be this road of Saint-Joseph and Boulevard de l'Entente, a couple of blocks away from where I grew up. The body and its iron gibet was exposed to the public view, where she slowly starved to death, being harassed by passerby. People would toss tomatoes and vegetables at her and cursing her name, and she in her faint state would curse back at them telling them that she would see him in another life, and vengeance would be hers. 
soon after her death, rumors started appearing that even to this day, you can still hear the chains and the grinsing of the Shebeh, where she was hanged. And on a full moon, you can actually hear her moan because of her saw, if you wish, because of the fate she was put into. So to this day, kids will grow up, and once in a while, they will go, if you're brave, on a full moon, on those corners of the streets, and just listen in the eerie silence, see if they can hear that Joseph Kalibo's body calling from the grave. Did you ever hear her? Nah, I don't know if I could say I heard her, but there were some spooky nights there, for sure. <laughs> you like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you got another one for us? No. No? <laughs> You're supposed to have another story for us. <coughs> no, I'm... I'm uh, I get too scared from stories, <laughs> even though I know they're not true. <laughs> yeah, skeptics were supposed to take that with a grin of salt, but you can't help but have the hair on the back of your neck. You know, mm-hmm. stand up. Sometimes some of these stories. Well, I have another one. Although it is not a, um, it's not a ghost story per se, but it is something that did happen to me. Um, and to this day, I don't quite have a, an understanding of exactly what happened. But, oh, let's put back the music on, I guess. Alright. Now, this story happened about six or seven years ago. I used to live in the north side of Mission. In the woods. used to live in a nice log cabin. Small log cabin. That was actually on a tree farm. I was coming back one fall night, another full moon, late, late day at work. I was tired. I was so very tired. And I was driving back home to the point where I was starting to think that my brain is not functioning. I should be parking this car aside, take a power nap or something. But I was so close to home. I'll get there. I'll just get there. As I was driving outside of town, up this, off the windy road, that is Sylvester Road, and then I turned onto Hartley. Midway through Hartley, I made a another left onto what was Burns Road. Burns Road ends up in a dead end, and my little lock cabin was pretty much at the end of that road. The only light on Burns Road was one at the corner of the street where you hardly meet. And after that, it's just the moonlight that lights up your path. It was a beautiful, nice fall night. It was really late at night. It must have been around well, 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, fog had appeared, like it pretty much does at this time of year. And I was driving down the road with the radio blasting, trying to keep me awake, knowing... 500 more meters, I'll be there. One kilometer, 500 meters. I'm I'm almost there. I can hear my bed calling me, and I'm quickly falling asleep. As I was driving down, and I knew, oh, three driveways to my place. Two driveways. What's this? There was this person standing 
in the ditch on the side of the road. Unusually tall of a person. And funny thing is, when you're that tired, you realize that your thoughts are kind of slow. And your actions are automatic. I was pretty much on cruise control, autopilot, driving down the road. And I passed this person, and all I could notice was the back of their head. And they had very thick, what looked like coarse hair, of a brownish-reddish color. As I barreled right by this person, or what I thought was a person, a couple hundred meters further down, I realized, what did I just see there? This was unusual. And I turned into my driveway, and I parked the car and turned the engine off. Now, of course, the music that was blaring suddenly was quiet. There is no light around there. The house is dark. The only light that shines is the moonlight. And this howl is heard. I can hear this howl, although my doors are closed. It's very unusual, because I know the neighbor has a kennel of dogs, and they usually bark all the time. They're quite annoying. They bark day, and they bark at night. But this day, they were quiet. They were silent. Not a peep out of those dogs. But there is this howl. This howl extremely close by. Something I've never really heard before. I gather a bit of courage and open the door of my car and immediately chill right up my spine. Dogs aren't barking, as usual, but this howl is still present. What is this howl? Yeah, you can hear the crickets. What is this howl? It's very close. It's too close for comfort. Right away, I kind of felt that was not safe for me to be there. I quickly, quickly searched for my car keys and raced to the front of the door. Unlocked the door as best I could and got inside. Inside, of course, everybody was already asleep. All I could notice that the two cats, which are usually just prancing around at this time of night like cats usually do, are huddled together, eyes wide open under the couch. They are also not moving. They seem complete frightened, like they spotted some kind of predator. What did I see out there? I'm trying to replay my mind over and over again. What did I see? Did I really see what I thought I saw? Your mind just makes up fantastic tales. Did I see a creature? Did I see the enigmatic Sasquatch? To this day, I don't know. So I tried climbing up the stairs to get into bed, but I couldn't fall asleep. All I could do was to look outside and at my window and look at the bushes from where that sound seemed to come from. I could see rustling, but nothing less, or nothing more. Was it a bear? I don't know. And to this day, I don't know. 
What exactly did I see? I guess I'll never know. How was that? Hmm. I'm not going to sleep tonight. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> <coughs> well, it's going to be a short episode, I guess. Today. We do have one more thing. We do have one more thing, and uh, we want to leave with that. Um, we do have a classic story that we want to tell. Uh, well, actually, we're not going to tell, but we're going to let somebody else tell it. It's a classic story from Edgar Allan Poe. Yes. You you want to introduce it now? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Wait, i got to find it first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're all familiar with Edgar Allan Poe's famous uh, poem, The Raven. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is being read by James Earl Jones. It is, it is. Now, the, it's kind of funny because I never heard of, growing up back east in French society and all that, I never heard of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, but, uh, <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of embarrassing, but the first time I actually heard this poem was actually with an episode of The Simpsons. Uh, the very first uh, year of The Simpsons, their first uh, episode of uh, of Halloween, their Halloween special. Now you can tell Karen's getting nervous because now she's playing with the cables. Instead of playing with the microphone stand, she's playing with the cables. I'm not nervous. I just... <laughs> <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe actually wrote a lot of stuff, but this is the only thing that anyone knows of his. Yeah. So I guess we'll leave you guys tonight with uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven by James Earl Jones. Enjoy. Oops.
but the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, the note. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here, I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least of beasts made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door, perched upon the bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven. Ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled with this ungainly fowl to hear the discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such a name as But the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. And the bird said, nevermore. Startled by the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore to the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never nevermore but the raven still beguiling my sad fancy into smiling straight I wheel a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door then upon the velvet sinking I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy thinking what this ominous bird of yore what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining, that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining the lamplight gloating o'er she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from some unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, 